Hi everybody and thank you for tuning in to the latest podcast series brought to you by the Chrysalis Crew. My name is Kelly Swingler and today I am talking to Michelle Jimmer who I believe is joining us from, I want to say the sunny Valencia, Michelle. Is it sunny there today? It is absolutely boiling today so yes. Good, good, good. We've, we've got the heat but we haven't got the sunshine so uh, <laughs> let's hope that comes over over the weekend. Uh, Michelle, thank you very much for, for joining us today. I suppose just start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Okay, well, thank you for, for having me. So, yes, my name is Michelle Jimmer and I am a pay gaps consultant. So I work with organisations to help them understand why they have gender and ethnicity pay gaps. Um, and I help them to create action plans that actually work for them in helping them to create more inclusive workplaces as well as reduce the pay gaps that they have. Brilliant. And um, I'm, I'm going to make the assumption here, but I would imagine that keeps you very busy. It, well, it's funny you should say that because, um, I mean, my background is I've worked at the Equality and Human Rights Commission for 12 years on, you know, on this and very similar topics. And it's been a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, sometimes organisations absolutely run a mile because they just don't want to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. And then other times, it, you know, I'll, I'll be in a lot of demand, um, which is where I am now. So it really does, de it really does depend on who I'm talking to and what's kind of going on in the outside world to either prompt people to stay exactly where they are or to prompt them to start taking actions. Mm, interesting. And you said some, some organisations run a mile. Why would they run a mile from closing pay gaps? Um, I, I think it's because, you know, the conversations that organisations have around pay gaps tend to happen in secret, behind closed doors, only you know a few people on the board or the exec team will have the data and information of what their pay gaps actually look like. And I think for a lot of organizations, it just looks like too much like hard work because the reality is, it's all about rocking the boat and changing the status quo. So obviously, you know, pay gaps haven't arrived overnight. They have arrived through a series of things that organisations do, as well as what they don't do. So when you start tackling, you know, the root causes of why you have pay gaps, you're, you know, you're essentially, uh, you know, ripping up the rule book of how you've always done things and starting to do things differently. And you know what people are like, you know, we we don't really crave change. We like to have, you know, that consistency. We like to know what we're doing. And so in a lot of ways, you know, looking at your pay gaps data and doing something about it can feel very disruptive. Uh -huh. so organisations don't have um, an external or internal pressure to do something about it. A lot of organisations will just, you know, happily close the chapter on, on that issue and move on to something that they think is much more pressing. Uh -huh. Absolutely, and we've, we, we need to be having much more of these conversations, but, but doing much more as well, don't we? Just kind of taking you back a step further. So um, you said, you know, kind of previous experience, Human Rights Commission. How do you go from human rights to gender pay? Um, well, pay I suppose. Yes, well, well, it's a, a bit of both, really. So um, I started off working on the helpline at the Equality and Human Rights Commission, um, so I was advising um, education on what the Equality Act said and what the Human Rights Act said and how it kind of works if you are in the education sector. 
and I basically, you know, lots of jobs would come up because the the commission's remit is to advise service providers, employers, and educational establishments on, you know, what the Equality Act says and how to embed it into, you know, real day-to-day business life. And uh, a position came up to work on on equal pay and closing the gender pay gap. And at the time, I knew absolutely nothing about it. But I thought, oh, this sounds interesting. And um, I guess that's where my kind of education started because I didn't know what it was. I'd never heard of it before. And then once I started to kind of educate myself around it and, you know, obviously doing work in that field, I started to realise that actually there were instances where maybe I had experienced a pay gap, but I I didn't know because I just had, I didn't have the vocabulary. I didn't, you know, I didn't know what it was. I'd never heard of it. Um, So, yeah, so that's kind of how I, I fell into that. And then I decided that actually I wanted to do it freelance because I wanted to do much more hands on work with organizations. When I was at the Human Rights Commission, my role was to you know, provide guidance and training, but I couldn't work individually with firms, which is what I really wanted to do. I wanted to, you know, boots on the ground, um, you know, walking the talk with organisations and really helping them to move the dial mm-hmm. when it comes to closing pay gaps. Okay. And with your... With the work that, that you do, you, you said maybe you had identified when you started to, to kind of get, get educated around it, that, that maybe you had experienced some of those pay gaps previously. What do you, with the work that you do with people, what, what kind of comes up as the reasons why, why this has happened? Is, is there, I don't know, is, is there a, I don't know, two or three themes or topics or what, what kind of causes it, do you think? Well, I, th- I think there are a myriad of things and, you know, depending on what the pay gap is, whether it's gender or ethnicity or, or anything else, there will be different things. So in terms of gender, um, what I was finding is that a lot of people and women in particular were not clued up around pay structures in workplaces. Oh. So it's very much you see a job advert if they say the range is from, you know, X to Y, or the salary is a certain salary, a lot of people, women in particular, would just go with what was what they were told. Whereas men statistically, not always, but statistically, are more likely to negotiate and ask for more. Now, that necessarily isn't, isn't necessarily always a gender pay gap issue. That can be an equal pay issue. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing that was coming up for me. I guess the other common um, theme that I would see very often was around the time when, you know, women would start families and you'd start to see the difference in career trajectory for fathers compared to mothers. And what I was seeing is that after having, you know, first, second, you know, third child, uh, the the difference in what a woman's career would look like would be vastly different to, you know, what, what a father's career would look like. And obviously it, it wasn't, you know, they weren't, you know, going at, at, this, at the same speed. So in terms of gender, I would say that they were the kind of two things that were coming up. Um, and also lack of flexibility when it comes to senior roles or roles with a lot of responsibility or roles that have the, um, the kind of power to propel your career. Because, you know, we have this, I think it's an old mindset that, you know, full time work is the only way to get ahead. And if you do anything less than that, well, then you can't possibly hold a senior role or you can't possibly hold a role that has any kind of real responsibility. And for a lot of women in particular, again, if they have families, et cetera, it's just not compatible. 
um, be working, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week constantly and, you know, be present, you know, in your family life with everything else that's going on. And so it's very much the way that work set up. It was very much a trade off. It was one or the other. You can't have the great career that you have studied so hard for and worked for um, and have, you know, the family life that you want. And it almost feels like, you know, you're asking men to just choose career and we were saying to women okay maybe you should settle um for you know something less than what your capabilities are because you want to have children or, or you do have children um when it comes to ethnicity pay gaps i think a lot of that is around kind of um the the kind of systemic racism that is in workplaces that a lot of workplaces wouldn't like to admit Mm-hmm. But it's heavily prevalent in terms of recruitment, retention, promotion, pay issues. And, you know, this, this one is a little bit trickier to, to prove and to kind of put your, your finger on. But I, you know, I have stories um, from my own work experience. I know of, you know, good friends and colleagues whose careers have been very, very stifled. And when you try to, to look at the objective reasons as to why they're not progressing, even though they are absolutely brilliant at their jobs you know it really just boils down to well you know there are not many black faces or brown faces in very senior roles and then you start to ask yourself well could it could it be a race issue and unfortunately I think it is but it's one of those things it's it's quite hard to prove and because it's hard to prove and it's a very sensitive subject not many people normally talk about it but obviously with everything that's going on at the moment it is becoming a much more prevalent conversation. Mm. Yeah, well, and in, in a moment, we'll, we'll come on to that, what you said in terms of prevalent conversation. I suppose a, cu- a couple of questions around what, what you just said there. Do you think, so we are starting to, to see a bit of a shift, aren't we, with with more, uh, more dads being the stay-at-home dad mm-hmm. um, and their wives or partners uh, being being the the main breadwinner, the, the one that's going out to to work full time. Mm-hmm. Have you started to see any any differences in that? You think we could have the reverse, maybe, of what we've seen from a from a gender pay perspective. Whereas those, you know, the the dads that are starting to take a step back, they may start to have similar impacts that that we've we've kind of been been seeing or or have been identifying over the years with with mothers. What in in terms of the kind of negative aspects of, of yeah, I suppose you know maybe careers being stifled, maybe pay being you know the the, the pay gap increasing maybe for for them if they if they're then working part time. Do you think we maybe start to see a bit of a flip? Um, I'm not entirely sure to be honest because I th- I think um, I mean obviously yes what what you're saying is you know we are st- starting to see dads and I, and I don't think it's just that the desire is rising I think it's more of a case of just feeling that they have to say something and that they have to ask for these things I think the desire has probably always been there but maybe it's not always been a very safe environment for men to admit that that is what they want to do or that's what they need to do yeah whether we will see the negative flip I, I'm not entirely sure and I, I have a feeling that I have a feeling that we won't see it and I, and I think it's I don't I don't really know how to explain or how to put my finger on it but I but I think probably because you know lots of partner male partners would have seen you know their, their wives partners girlfriends whatever their careers kind of going down you know down the tube as it were because they chosen you know to put their 
you know, families on an equal footing with their career. I think we're going to see probably dads pushing back and saying, yes, I want flexibility, but I also am committed to my career and I won't tolerate the, you know, the discrimination that she's usually politically reserved for mothers. So I have a feeling that there's going to be a mindset shift in that employers will recognize that and will be forced to, um, you know, address their own biases mm-hmm. around what work can look like. And that work doesn't have to look like somebody working 40 to 60 hours a week. Mm. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting take. Thank you. I was interested in, interested in your views on that one. And, and I think also when you said in terms of uh, maybe kind of women negotiating, we don't, maybe don't necessarily understand the, um, the kind of pay within organisations as much. And maybe we are not negotiating as but I, I can think of one particular example where I was in an organization and had been offered a promotion uh, much much quicker than than I ever kind of imagined I think I'd been with the organization only a couple of months mm-hmm. and <clears throat> I was offered uh, this this uh, was offered this promotion and the salary banding was uh, I think between 80, 80k and, and 90k mm-hmm. and I remember sitting with my with my boss, very very strong female boss, um, and her saying to me, "What salary do you want?" And me saying, um, and this I think this was the first time that I'd really recognised it. And then when I was asked to speak about it in as part of a, a kind of women's forum that we had later, I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, yes, I see this all the time. But I, I'd kind of automatically gone in with, okay, well, I'll go for the 80 because it's a new role. It's more responsibility. It's something that I don't know. I need to grow. I need to develop. I need to do all of these things. Mm. Um, and this was the first time I'd ever had a manager say to me, if you were a man, you would be sat here telling me that you want 90 and we'd be negotiating down to 85. And I was like, wow. Um, and I thought, do you know what? Actually, yes, you're right. And when I thought, you know, i I've been in HR probably, I don't know, 13, 14 years by then. And I had seen how some of these negotiations had been going. Mm. And from an employer's perspective, of course, if we can get away with paying somebody the lower end of a salary banding, why wouldn't we do it? But if we've got people that are demanding the higher end of the salary, and maybe we're either paying them that or negotiating slightly down, we do, we definitely see different ends of uh, ends of that shift. And I think then, you know, continuing from that point, I have continued to see that. And, and again, like not to necessarily stereotype, but I have absolutely seen and been there from a salary negotiation perspective and seen the difference of how men and women negotiate their own salaries. Yeah. And I think, and I think it's important to stress that, you know, I'm not suggesting that this is women's fault because I think sometimes, you know, people kind of get annoyed um, at people saying, oh, well, if women just negotiated, everything would be okay. Because you have to deal with, obviously, the biases from people on the other side who, yeah. um, who will push back stronger against women who negotiate. So I just want to make that clear. But, you know, we don't live in a society where we talk about money in a very transparent way. Mm-hmm. And when we then, you know, are going for a new job or going for promotion there's a lot of secrecy around pay in workplaces and I see this a lot so I was working with an organization um, helping them with their um, gender pay gap issues and one of the things I suggested was that you need to have pay transparency Mm. because the people that worked there were really unsure as to 
how the what the pay bandings were, what other people were on, where they were on the scale, what they needed to do to move up, um, you know, how bonuses worked. And so when I sat down with the HR team and we talked through, you know, what their pay scales were, they were all over the place. <laughs> and, you know, and I was saying to them, you know, look, if you can introduce pay transparency, that will build up a lot of trust for people because then they know where they are. They can make better career decisions and they feel that there isn't anything that you that you are hiding. But all of this plays into, you know, ensuring that people are paid fairly, but also ensuring that people know how they're careers can progress because they have the information that they need and a lot of us women don't um we don't have those conversations around money and career progression and a lot of hr teams like you said if they can get away with paying you very little because that's all you've asked for that's what will happen so you know so there is there is some things that individuals can do but then hr teams uh need to be need to be very clear on what the pay banding is what is a pay structure how much way can they have so that they're not setting themselves up for potential equal pay claims later on down the line yeah and i suppose it then becomes a bit of a catch-22 doesn't it if if neither party is doing anything to, to start these conversations or look at the transparency or look at the fairness we're not going we're not going to be able to make that change so we need to look at it from an organization perspective but we also need to be looking at it from an individual perspective Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that might be a difficult conversation to have. And I could tell when I was suggesting it to this organization, they were just like, I could see their faces like, oh God, we're going to have to talk to such and such about his really high salary and we're not going to be getting such big bonuses anymore. And I could tell that they really didn't want to do it, but that is just part and parcel, isn't it? You know, if you are really serious about diversity and inclusion in whatever guise, it means having uncomfortable conversations about, you know, business behaviours that have, may have existed for, for a long time and become the norm. And because you're disrupting that and doing something different, it means having you know, awkward conversations, but that is just part of the journey. If you're serious about you know, um, making improvements in you know, whatever aspect of DNI that, you, that you're currently working on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then we, we spoke about, and I, I think you know, at, the, at the time that you and I had, had first arranged to have this conversation, Initially, I really wanted to, to be able to kind of get your view, I suppose, on particularly around the, you know, about the, around the pay gaps, both gender, gender and ethnicity from, from an HR perspective. Um, we've been having conversations and I've been having conversations for, for the last few years around diversity in HR. A lot of that had been, uh, I suppose, more focused on uh, gender diversity within HR. But since we, since I think we, we've started to have, have you know, we, we had that conversation and, and I've been having conversations with people to, to, to really start this, this podcast series, the world has moved on a lot. We've seen over the last few months, challenges, issues, conversations around, <clears throat> around racism, particularly around Black, Black Lives Matters. But I think that has sparked a, a wider debate around privilege and around um you know different ethnic groups and how they are how they are being treated with, within the workplace and and you mentioned a few moments ago around kind of systemic racism in organizations mm -hmm. and maybe some of the the difficult conversations you have we can't talk to people about pay how are we then having i suppose some of the more challenging conversations around gender around race around you know all, all of those all of those kind of things and 
systemic racism for me is, I suppose, quite a, well, I suppose for, for many people, but quite an uncomfortable term, something that I would like to say absolutely hasn't been present in any of the organisations that, that I've worked in. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think the more that I have been thinking about that over the last couple of months, maybe it has been there. And, and again, I, I suppose from an education perspective, the more that I learn and the more that I understand and the more of the, the conversations that I've been able to play back, maybe it has been there. What do we do about this issue then around systemic racism? Because I'm sure there are many, many people out there that will say it just does, it doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, I think we've seen even over the last couple of weeks, you know, the, the news around kind of the Ellen DeGeneres show and, you know, people talking about systemic racism going on with, within her organisation and with, within her teams. Um, I mean, this is, this is, I want to say a minefield in it and it really shouldn't be, but what do we do to get more comfortable having these conversations? Well, I th- I think the first thing is is to understand that it is real and even if you don't feel or you don't see it or you don't sense it as being real doesn't mean that it's not there it means that you have you have lived uh, you know within a system that allows you not to notice it mm. and not to um, be negatively impacted by it mm. And somebody once described it as um, it being the air that you breathe, Mm. the way in which it's just embedded in everything, education, the services that you use, you know, policing, health, work. And one of the issues around systemic racism is that it's, it's so, it's, it's, it's openly prevalent but it's not until you start to unpack what it looks like in all of its guises, you don't realize that it's there. Mm. And what I see, what what I saw towards the beginning and, you know, of this conversation and, and it will still be prevalent now is a lot of people are, are still in that place where they're unwilling to accept that it's real. Mm. And I think it comes from a place of, believing that if they accept that it's real it means that they are terrible people or it means that everything that they've worked for they don't deserve because they've been part of a beneficial system and that isn't necessarily true and I think that is part of the issue with you know the term white privilege it really it really upsets a lot of people because when you hear the word privilege you usually think of somebody you know with a silver spoon in their mouth and everything handed them handed to them on the plate and most people don't identify with that and are horrified at the thought of you know having everything given to them i mean look about look at the way that we talk about you know um you know the kind of elite as it were of you know of UK politics etc we don't hold much love for them because you know we have this idea of oh they're very privileged and they have everything handed to them on the plate so then when you add white privilege to that that actually includes a lot more people than you know the kind of top of the political class and and it brings up that resistance that feeling of well actually I've worked very hard to get to where I am so I can't you know you can't be talking about me but you know white privilege is the um, ability to not have to ever think about your colour 
as something that's going to hold you back in education or is going to be detrimental to you. You know, if you're accessing a health service, you don't have to worry about, you know, the police following you uh, because you're driving a car that they think you shouldn't have. You know, you don't have to worry about not being promoted because, you know, uh, because you're black. You know, it's, it's all of those really small things um, that you don't have to think about. But for others like myself and, you know, for, you know, somebody who might be Asian, et cetera, it's, it's something that's always at, it's either at the back of our minds or it's at the front of our minds, depending on what the situation is. And so it is really about accepting that that is the world that we live in. And you may have been aware of it and chosen to ignore it, or you may have been completely oblivious to it, but it, but it is, it is a reality. And that really is a starting point because otherwise if you're not in that listening space of just, just listening and just accepting, it can be very easy to get very defensive very quickly. And that is where the conversations either break down or they just don't happen at all. Mm. And so starting with that self-acknowledgement. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, you know, and accepting that, you know, you, in, in some way, shape or form, despite any hardships that you may have had and despite how hard you have worked, you will still have had some more privilege than I will have had. And, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no shame in that in of itself because you, you haven't built the system, mm. but you have been a beneficiary of it and there's no getting away from that. And I think it's that uncomfortableness that a lot of, a lot of white people are really struggling with. Because if you accept that, then the next question is, okay, well, what do you do to dismantle that privilege that, that you have and ensure that that equity is given to your black and, and brown, you know, friends and colleagues, et cetera. And that's where the hard work kind of comes in, basically. And do you, do you think it is that hard work that's stopping us? So even, even as you just kind of said that, you know, that actually, you know, I, I may have had less struggle I'm you know not necessarily have, have had those conversations and, and I, I, I do find that quite difficult to hear mm. uh, you know from from where I was brought up and you know the, the different relationships that I've had the different friendship groups that I've had you know members of my family um, we were you know we were absolutely all brought up to respect everybody to you know all, all of that sort of stuff and I think lots of us lots lots of white people will say the same well you know we were just brought up to respect everybody so actually we don't see that there are these issues mm -hmm. um i and i and I, I don't know what i'm necessarily trying to say but i think it is that next step isn't it like you said you know i i haven't created a system but i can do things to ensure that that system breaks that we can then you know, that, that people don't have to worry about whether they are not being promoted, that people don't have to worry about whether they're not being recruited, all of those sorts of things. Do you mm -hmm. think it's the action that, that we, you know, that, that some of us in, in businesses are shying away from, or do you still think it is that initial acknowledgement? I think it's a bit of both. So for some, it will still be that uh, initial acknowledgement. And, you know, that's okay. It's, it's, it's it's a lot to take in and especially when there's you know so much you know noise and conversation on social media it can feel overwhelming and some people are just not ready to hear it they you know don't believe it and they think it has nothing to do with them 
for those that are in the place of, okay, I'm here, I'm in the room, I'm hearing this, then it's the acknowledgement that actually it permeates pretty much everything. Mm. And sometimes that's where the resistance and overwhelm can come in. Because if you're an organization of, say, I don't know, thousand people and you are having conversations about Black Lives Matter, systemic racism, you're looking at your, you know, your senior leadership, you're looking at your board and you realize everybody's white, everybody's male, um, you know, everyone's come from very similar educational backgrounds and say you're smack bang in the middle of London, which is very, you know, culturally diverse, mm. then it you know, it kind of dawns you like, oh, okay. So we, we've got some work to do here in unpicking how we got here and how we don't want to still be in this same position in yeah. 10 years time. And that can be daunting. So you have those who don't want to listen, who are not ready to hear it. And then you'll have people who are listening, but are, are scared of what the bold steps are needed. Because like I said before, it is about unpacking the things that you've done before in the past mm-hmm. and doing something different. And that takes, you know, I don't know, courage isn't, isn't quite the word, but it, it takes some resilience because you'll, you'll then get pushed back. There'll be times when it, feel, it feels like it's too hard. Mm-hmm. You may not see results very quickly and you want to get out of that sticky, uncomfortable phase. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that might be a point where some organisations say, you know what, it's just too difficult. We're, we're, we're making money. The business is fine. You know, we're doing okay. We, we, don't need, we don't need to do any of this work because it's too disruptive. And so for me, I, you know, I recognize that, you know, organizations are made up of people and everybody is on a journey and some will get there quicker. Some will have lots of details. Some will get stuck along the way and some will do, will do nothing. My my personal feeling is that, you know, whatever I can do for those organizations who are ready to do the work, you know, I'm, I'm here to do what, what I can um, for them. And I accept that everybody works at a different pace and everyone will find things diff- different, difficult, and there will be hard conversations along the way. Okay. Yeah, thank you. And you, you mentioned there that, you know, with, with some people, they might look at, their, look at their boards as, you know, this isn't where we necessarily want to be in 10 years time. With the, when you were talking about the, the kind of pay gaps um, that, you, that you work with and the action plans that you, that you help to create, do they tend to be like over really long time frames? I know one, one organisation um, that we, I get completely frustrated with all of the time is, is around the BBC whenever they've done their kind of pay reporting uh, and gender pay reporting for, for the year. It's, they're always talking about, you know, we'll fix this over the next five or 10 years. And I like, I, I sit there kind of screaming at the TV or the radio, like, why is it going to take so long? Mm-hmm. Um, and when we're looking at, you know, changing boards, where, where we're looking at um, recruiting more diverse workforces, more diverse boards, which, you know, again, the research tells us the more diverse the, the leadership teams, the more diverse an organisation, the more successful the organisation is. Do you, do you find anybody that's like, right, you know, we want to do something to change it now? Or do, do those action plans tend to be like based on five or 10 year planning? Well, what, what I tend to do is I, I give, I give organisations both because I think it's important, it's important to have the kind of small wins to um, allow you to feel that you're making some progress. You know, five and 10 year plans are great 
but you don't want to you you want to see some successes before then because otherwise you'll lose heart um you'll you know there'll be resistance you'll get pushback people ask questions what's the point of doing this we're not seeing any results and you know what it, you know you've worked in an organization before mm -hmm. people want to see results you know within you know they want to see something happening within six months and 12 months etc so when i work with organizations i give them both so i will give them some immediate things that they can do because it's always small things that you can do immediately to just start shifting the dial then I'll give like medium term options and then the long term plan, which is, you know, much more, you know, embedded work that's going to take time and resources. And the reason I do that is to give you to, so that you've always got something to do and you're not sitting going, oh, well, in 10 years time, this will be sorted. We don't need to do yeah. anything for the first seven. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but also it to magically happen at the 10 years. I know. Yeah, exactly. But also so that you've got something to talk about because, you know, whilst you're implementing all of these things, you know, your employees are going to be curious as to why, you know, why are you suddenly, you know, um, publishing pay bands and, you know, why are, you know, why are, why are we putting our reports out internally before we put them out externally? You know, what, what does this all mean? You need to have conversations with people so that they trust you they understand they're on the journey and you've got their buy-in because there's nothing worse than having a top-down directive where senior management have decided something and it just happens and people have questions you know the questions come up uh, um up over things like oh well does you know with your, the work that you're doing in gender pay gap does that mean that i as a man i'm not going to get a job because you're looking for a woman for that role because you're trying to close your pay gap that wow. you, you need to be able to have something to say about all of the things that you're doing to give people the opportunity to voice their fears and concerns because you want them to come with you but if you've just got a 10-year plan and nothing else in place it's very difficult to do that so this mm -hmm. is why i always give people you know the short term the medium term and the long term um points of what it is that they can do so that they're keeping themselves busy but also people can see the changes that are coming gradually they can you know buy into them understand them ask questions get involved make suggestions because that is when you will see the um the real changes when your employees are bought into it and it's because you have a clear plan that has stages and you're working through them together yeah yeah and we in, in terms of those conversations again we've, we've been seeing again haven't we in a, a, an influx over the last probably over the last month in terms of organizations that now want to recruit somebody to, to purely focus on on diversity and inclusion um, I was gobsmacked actually. I was I was invited to be on a on a on a business board, uh, which I was actually really pleased with. So I've been I've been doing some work behind the scenes on on some other panels for this particular organisation. Was asked to be on their business board, and when I went in for my induction meeting, it was like you know, oh great, you know we've we've hit our diversity targets now, you know, because we've got another woman. Um, and I was a bit like, uh, uh, you know, throughout my entire career, I have always assumed that I have been recruited or selected for even some of the voluntary stuff, actually, because of my skills and experience. Mm -hmm. Never has anybody so openly said to me, you know, we've, we've now hit our targets because you're a woman that's, that's on this board. And it was like, are you, are you kidding me? Yeah. Do you think we will get to a point? I mean, my, my hope is that we will. But do you think we will get to a point whereby we we're obviously aware of our targets? I'm, I'm definitely personally, I'm not a fan of quotas, mm -hmm. but I absolutely agree that we do need to be having 
more diversity right the way across our organizations mm-hmm. um i think we need more diversity teams or, or you know just just organizations or leadership teams that reflect our customer base yeah um do you think we are seeing a a real shift or do you think we're just starting to see a lot of lip service um where people just think you know this is just about ticking a box bringing somebody in that says that you know they're, they're now responsible for for for, for dni and just kind of letting them get on with it from there well i it's it's hard to know um and it's interesting that you said about you know this sudden push for lots of dni roles and i have noticed that um massively mm. that it's you know it's come the, the last month in particular i'm seeing seeing lots of them I think maybe we should come back and do a podcast in 18 months time. Um, yes. And I might, be, I might be able to give you the answer. Yes, yes. <laughs> Two reasons. So COVID struck, uh, well struck, it's still here, but you know, it had massive impact um, around March time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's because of the, the impact it's had, lots of organizations are having to make, you know, redundancies, et cetera, mm-hmm. which is understandable. What I was hearing was that DNI budgets were being frozen one of the first things to go, mm-hmm. DNI people were being let go. Okay, so we have this economic crisis, it's the first thing to go. Yeah. Black Lives Matters happened, and yeah. the ripple effect across the world is massive. Lots of organizations are you know, having a very introspective time and realizing that they are not challenging the system, they are part of the system. Yeah. And so the easiest thing to do is to say, right, we've not had somebody focused on DNI, or focused on looking at race in particular in DNI, we need to get somebody in. And to a certain extent, I understand that, you know, it's a, it's a skill set and you, you do need to have that particular resource. But it's so interesting that only, what, two months beforehand, these people are being let go yeah. and now suddenly yeah. they need recruitment. But what I think is important is, you know, when you see these roles, you should, you should be looking to see, are they permanent roles? Uh-huh. Are they fixed term? I've noticed quite a lot of them are fixed term for a year. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. I've uh, seen six month ones. Like you're yeah. going to fix all of the diversity and inclusion issues in an organisation in six months. Yeah, and you know, I so that is that rings alarm bells because it makes me think that, like you said, if you think that this can be resolved in six months, then are you really committed, or is it a case of we're so petrified we don't know what we're doing? We just we just want to. We just want to start with baby steps but obviously you don't know until you go into an organization but a second question to ask i think is you know what is the overall budget because having one person in dni is not enough to mm. resolve what the issues are and then it's also about what you know how much um, responsibility and um what's the word influence are they actually going to have mm. you know what, what are you expecting from this person are you expecting them to write a report and then you and make recommendations and then it gets put in a drawer are they there to actually make real changes will they have the capacity and the clout to be able to do that are you ready to be challenged and so you know it i can't gaze into my crystal ball and tell you that this is performative or it's real but I guess we'll, we'll know in about 18 months time, we'll see if all those people are still in position. We will see what changes have been made, if any, and we'll see if those fixed term contracts become permanent or they get extended. It, it's, it's, difficult. it's difficult to tell. And I suspect that a lot of organizations are 
just hedging their bets. So just they're taking an initial first step because it's easy to do. It's not, it's risk-free, but it's whether they are willing to take the risks later on with whatever those, that person suggests and ensure that that person in that role has the, the support to actually do the job properly. And yeah. it's not just a performative role. Yeah. And it comes back to that action again, doesn't it? We need to be seeing action. If we want to drive the change and create the change, we've got to be acting. It's great that we can have the conversations, but this is more than just a conversation piece. Yeah. And I guess, you know, for anybody who might be going for that role, for those roles, you should, you know, one question you could ask them at interview is, you know, where, where do you see this role in five years time? What do you think this person should, you know, what, should be doing in five years time and if they can't answer that um then it makes me think okay then then maybe this is just a band-aid for now and they're just kind of looking around to see what everyone else is doing and we'll, we'll follow suit but if they can say right well in five years we hope to have done this and this and maybe we could be tackling xyz then you know it's been there's been some thought that's been put into it mm. and you know that there's, there's support there so i guess you know it's about delving deeper and getting getting to the why and what resources and support is going to be for that person going forward yeah good tips for questions there we go make sure you get those answered people um and michelle do you mind can i ask you i want to i want to give you um a, a, a bit of a a bit of a scenario actually about how i was feeling at the start of um this whole kind of black lives matter stuff and, and something that we'd obviously seen as sparking the world but also in kind of conflict or comparison i suppose really with with something that was going on in, in the uk that week as well and mm. i found myself uncomfortable upset angry um wanting to be able to do something about it not knowing what to do um but i i think i i saw this total polarity and i, I, I you know I, I don't want this to turn into into a political conversation but just something that that I had seen. So we had seen the, 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 the tragic killing of, of George Floyd on the Monday. Mm-hmm. On the Wednesday within the UK, um, we had um, one, of, one of our politicians who um, had allegedly broken the law. He'd been traveling. He'd been, you know, kind of doing whatever it was that, that he wanted. And kind of Downing Street were just kind of, you know, the matter's closed. We're not going to be dealing with it anymore. And I think I, I then saw within the, 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 this kind of polarity situation, this worldwide um, message movement that, that was starting around George Floyd. And then this, and I, you know, I will say the kind of white privilege of, of this man who has clearly broken the law, but, you know, the boys club were kind of looking after him and sticking up for him. Mm-hmm. But that then also caused me to think about the, the, with the UK situation, had we have still had a female prime minister or had this particular advisor been a female, would we have been calling for both of them to resign and not giving up until we'd got both of them out of the door? And during that week, with everything that was going on within social media, with everything that was going on within the news, with everything, and like I said, this, this kind of total polarity of kind of black, white, male, female, all of this kind of stuff that was going on, I just felt uh, swamped, like totally overwhelmed, totally, Mm. like I said, you know, mix of angry, upset, frustrated, um, recognising that I probably hadn't done enough around my own education, but I think also having a conversation with one of my sons who was also, you know, kind of, 
talking about the fact, you know, one, one of the things that he came out with, you know, like he, he didn't believe that there was that white privilege existed in the UK, for example. Mm. Um, and it was like, wow, you know, uh, we have continued as a family to have some difficult conversations. We have watched some difficult programs. We have read books. We have, we've done all of that stuff, but I still find myself in a bit of like, what the hell can I do now yeah. either for myself or to, to or to kind of change things and I I still feel this kind of push pull like wanting to do something wanting to help the change wanting to do something to drive the change mm. while still feeling this kind of sadness and this frustration and this anger that we still have to be doing this yeah. and so I wonder if you don't mind just like how how have you been feeling over the last few months like as a as a person as a black woman as a black mother with with two children mm. how has all of this played out for you over the last couple of months well it's 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 been emotionally it's been crazy uh so obviously you know covid has come and robbed me of my sleep <laughs> just so, so worried about about everything and obviously being a freelancer you know all my work dried up literally overnight so there was yeah, some, yeah. Like, like everybody all of the kind of money worries of everything and then um the killing of of George Floyd happened and it was strange because I've seen so many of those videos so many that at first I was a little desensitized to it and then I don't know, it just, it, there was something about it kept playing on my mind. And I just, and you know what it was for me? It was seeing the look on the um, police officer's face. Mm. Like he was really getting his kicks out of it. Yeah. And I just saw no shame, no remorse. And obviously people were pleading with him to, you know, to stop so they could check on, check, check on George, but obviously he died. Um, and... And then there was the Amy Cooper video, which we haven't actually touched on. Um, that had a massive impact on me because in watching her behavior towards, um, towards Christopher, I can't remember his surname, um, in the park, I started to relive some of that tone policing, that behavior that I had experienced in the workplace with a, with a particular manager who was bullying me and I just remember thinking oh I've, I've, I've heard that tone of voice before I've, I've you know I've experienced that before so I basically was in a place where I was reliving a lot of things that I had buried that had happened to me you know particularly in the workplace um, which I knew were all race related but I had kind of closed off those memories and kind of parked them and was you know trying to move on so it has been it has been difficult um you know i like you said i have two children my partner is white we we regularly fairly regularly have conversations about race you know we have, we have to um i'm a black woman um i don't know if you know but there's a there's a thing that's called the talk and it's something that all black parents do with their children talk to them about about racism talk to them about the police etc and i think channel 4 have done a show yeah, they started a program with it this week um which i haven't got around to watching but that's on record right. um but yeah and again like for me that i, I would never have known that, that, that was, yeah. yeah you know i i have never had to have a conversation you know, I think was, my sons are 19 mm -hmm. they're tall they're blonde they're blue eyes i have never ever had to have a conversation with my sons about what it might be like 
for them if I don't know going out with friends going out in town what to do if a policeman walks past them um how they might be perceived at school or you know or, or any of those sorts of things so again to know that that is a conversation that many if not all black families are having yeah. again I find that really really difficult to to even kind of comprehend yeah but th this is our reality um uh yeah so i haven't actually seen i haven't seen the show yet but i will i will try to catch it but you know amongst black people if you if you mention the talk we all know we all know what it's about it's about racism and it's different guises so it might be around how teachers perceive you um it definitely is about the police um and it's about racism in general now i we had to start to have the talk with my son quite early on because some something had happened um, when he was young and he was really upset um, so we had to have it much 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 sooner than I wanted to but that's the world that we live in and that and that is the world of being a black parent that these things come to your door and you you have to deal with them um, so so yeah so me and my partner have had we've always had you know conversations about race mm -hmm. but we've had to we've had much much more conversations obviously since um since george mm. um murder what has been very interesting this time round is is actually having the world's attention and not just for five minutes as in this is another video this is another this is another killing it's another statistic but really delving into the injustice mm. of not only that murder but the injustice of how the system in America works and then obviously the ripple effect has been massive globally until yeah. now we're starting to have much more conversations you know here in the UK about race you know in lots of different ways and mm -hmm. so it has been um, emotionally draining there have been times where I've just wanted to switch off from the mm -hmm. whole thing mm -hmm. there have been times when I can't pull myself away from social media yeah. Um, and there have been times when, you know, I, I've watched, you know, rows break out, etc. But I mean, it's it's been it's been hard. Um, but but it's also I think there's an opportunity. I think we have the attention of a lot of white people that we've never had before. And I think something that's also underestimated is the, you know, the younger generation seem to be much less tolerant of this kind of thing. And I think that has yeah. really galvanized um galvanized thinking in saying that this is wrong and we we need to be doing something about this rather than paying paying lip service. Yeah. And you know, and I understand your your overwhelm and your frustration and anger. And this is why um, you know, I co-created the allyship journal with with a friend of mine, Ashanti, because we wanted to provide just, you know, a small space on the internet for people who were feeling overwhelmed and wanted to do something but just couldn't figure out what the next move was in yeah. the noise of social media. And the purpose of that journal is to ask thought-provoking questions. And it's not about judging or finger-pointing, but it's about helping you to understand, well, maybe, you know, what points in your life have you maybe not considered, um, you know, anti-racism or racism, I should say. And it's about helping you figure out what does allyship look like for you. Yeah. Because I can said before, the, the bigger picture is so wide, which is why so many people just don't do anything 
but you know we're not asking you to do everything it's just about helping you to figure out okay well what could you do in your network what sphere of influence do you have so for some people it may be that they are you know I don't know say like a governor at school okay that could be where they could focus something it may others it may be you know in um, accessing you know a health service that could be where they do something it could be to do with uh you know your workplace you know there are because it's so so systemic there are you know there are lots of places where racism live but that means that there are lots of different solutions so it really is about just just you know being quiet with yourself and thinking okay what can i do rather than being frustrated that i can't do everything focus on one area mm. and you know, give yourself the time and grace to to do it in your own way to get it wrong to make mistakes you know nobody's perfect but if you're always moving forward and you're always trying to do something that is always better than nothing and the ripple effect of that is massive if everybody does something mm. absolutely and it's those it's those ripples isn't it it's those ripples it's that acknowledgement, it's that understanding, it's that action. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and it's about just accepting that it is going to be excruciatingly uncomfortable and you will face, you know, resistance and you will be called difficult and obstinate and awkward. But that is, that is part of the journey. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, Michelle, you've mentioned your allyship journal um, and uh, we will, if you send me the link, we'll make sure that we, we put a copy of it when we, when we uh, put a link to it when we get the, um, this podcast live. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just tell us where people can find it. Um, I actually, oh, it's one of those, it's on Member Vault, so it's got one of those like long emails. Oh, we'll, just, we'll just include the link then. There we yeah. go. We'll make yeah. sure we include the link to the podcast. But where can people find out more about you, Michelle, and all of the work that, that it is that you're doing? Okay, so you can find me, my website is equalitypays.co.uk, um, but I spend most of my time on LinkedIn. So if you just look for me, Michelle Jimmer, that's G-Y-I-M-A-H. Um, I'm happy to connect with anybody who wants to enter my world and have conversations. Great, thank you. And Michelle, just to finish off, if I could give you... Um, or if you could give us your, I don't know if you've got a, a kind of top tip, but maybe there's a, there's a couple of issues that we kind of want on. So if we were to say the first around um, pay gaps, and it may be one for, one for each, but if there was a top thing that organisations should be doing to close pay gaps, so both gender and ethnicity, what would be your top tip for organisations to start doing? I think my top tip would be to get curious about what your pay gap is telling you. So I think a lot of organisations approach it with a sense of dread. They approach it with, oh God, you know, our numbers are terrible. We have to do X, we have to do Y, everyone's going to you know, hate us, etc. But I think if you, if you approach it from a place of curiosity and say, okay, what is this telling us? You know, where can we do better? How can we do better? If we were to close the gaps, what would that look like for us? What would we gain as a business? Approaching it from that um, place of curiosity and a place of, you know, wanting to do better, I think makes it much easier for you to be able to have the conversation and implement the changes that you're looking for, because you're, you're doing it for the organization's highest good. You're doing it for your employees' highest good. And you're doing it for your future employees' highest good as well. Yeah. And so remember, you know, people are watching you. You know, the people that are not in work yet, they're looking around and they're going to make decisions 
about who they want to work with and for. So it's all about approaching it, for me, approaching it from a sense of curiosity. How can we do better? How can we appeal to more people? Yeah, great. So curiosity, brilliant. And then if we were to, so obviously, the, you know, we've been talking about racism, we've been talking about systemic racism. Um, you've obviously created your um, allyship journal, which I think will be a, a great place for many people to start. Mm-hmm. But if there was kind of one final thought on, on what we can do as people, as human beings, as leaders, as organized, you know, with, within our organizations, what's one thing that we can do to, I suppose the, the initial thing really is, is by starting to have the conversations and then, and then looking at what the action is. So how can we encourage us to be having these, more of these conversations? I, th- I think it, it, the one thing to do is to embrace and accept that the conversation makes you vulnerable. Um, we have this strange thing where leaders, we have this strange thing where it's not okay for leaders to show any vulnerability or weakness and we overcompensate for that. And quite often, you know, you make terrible mistakes because you can't admit that you don't know the answer or yeah. you're not sure what to do next. This is a sensitive topic. And so I think approaching it with the understanding that you will feel vulnerable and that it's normal to feel that will make it bearable. <laughs> it won't make it easy, but it make it bearable. That it's normal to feel uncertain. It's normal to feel vulnerable. It's normal to be unsure about what's going to come next and what I need to do. But if you can accept that, that makes it easier. And the second thing is to remember that it's, it's vulnerable for me as well. It's not just, it's not about, it's not entirely about you and how you feel because, you know, you're asking me to relive things. You're asking me to tell you my experiences and that could be very risky. And there's a reason why we, you know, a lot of us black people have not done it before because of the potential repercussions and it's too much of a risk. Mm. So I think, you know, accepting that there's vulnerability on both sides will will help the conversation go a long way if you can hold that space of accepting that's what it's like yeah you you know and to to really listen and accept what what the other person has to say in this conversation brilliant thank you there are um, we could talk all day i'm sure (laughs) so many different topics and so many so many different streams but um I want to thank thank you so much you, for being so open, so honest, um, clear, lots lots of clarity, uh, some really really great hints and tips there. So just a huge thank you for me for for taking the time out out of your day to to have this conversation. Um, thank you to those of you that have listened, um, and we will pop the um, allyship journal on on the link. Um, and do reach out for Michelle definitely. I mean even even if not to look at the website definitely. Um, you know, follow or, or connect on LinkedIn. I know, um, Michelle, you've been putting some great stuff out there. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I've certainly kind of enjoyed reading it, watching it, kind of, again, learning, learning and understanding. So I can absolutely recommend connecting or, or following Michelle on LinkedIn. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kelly, for this conversation. It's, it's, been, it's been good. It's been vulnerable, but it's been good. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll speak again in 18 months' time, if not before then, by the sounds of it. Yes, yeah, definitely. I'll put it in the diary. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. Take care. And uh, yeah, do uh, head over to LinkedIn, everybody, and uh, follow, follow what Michelle is doing. Hopefully there'll be some great, great hints and tips and pointers on there for you. See you next time. <laughs>